Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the State of the Nova Nation podcast presented by VU Hoops. I'm Emma Houghton, he's Pat Zhang, and Pat, it came a little bit earlier than we all hoped for. Hmm. But after our quick hitter of Villanova's NIT loss to Liberty last week, it is here, the 2022-2023 season recap episode. How are you feeling about this one coming in? Man, not as fun to do as a season recap after a Final Four run, I, I guess, yeah, as we got still to Still in mid-March, yeah. Yeah, seriously, as we got to do from a year ago. However, there may be more information for us to go over on the season review recap looking forward uh, episode here with all the things that have happened and the potential things that could happen with this program. So we got a jam-packed episode today. Oh my gosh, we have so much to get to, but that's actually a really good point. We certainly weren't expecting the jay wright retirement episode midway through the offseason last year but we are definitely expecting for you listeners to hear a lot more of us as the the spring and the summer go on because of the the news that we're expecting villanova to make in terms of incoming and outgoing players let's put it like that but this episode we mentioned it on thursday we want this to be about the listener questions that we got and luckily we got enough of them because we have the best listeners in the world. So yeah, we do. we're going to frame our episode around those. Pat and I will intro a little bit about the season. We will talk about the Villanova women's basketball team, of course, because that is what everybody should be watching from here on out. And then we'll close with just final thoughts on the season. So I'm really excited for this episode. As we both mentioned, obviously, you can still feel bittersweet. You can still feel disappointed that Villanova didn't make the NCAA tournament, that Villanova wasn't one of those teams that we could watch in one of the better viewing tournaments in a long time thursday and Mm -hmm. friday were some of my favorite days in recent memory absolutely awesome to watch but obviously a huge bummer that villanova wasn't there but we're excited to get through a lot of the the good info we have today how's the bracket looking for you right now not to pat myself on the back but i'm doing pretty well but this happened last year too and then as it got later and later i did worse and worse so Mm -hmm. i feel good I we're recording this on Sunday afternoon before a lot of the games are starting as a disclaimer. So I did well on Saturday. I have six of the eight teams in the sweet 16 so far. That's pretty solid. But what I really want to say, Pat, is that it is in fact the year of the five. Seems like it seems like it. Wow. <laughs> and I, I hope the year of the five continues with St. Mary's taking down UConn uh, later tonight. That, yeah. that would make me a very happy camper. Of course, all of you will know what happened way far in advance before this episode comes out and uh, say I did not great at, at okay. the start, but I have all four of my final four teams still in it. So I'm hoping That's to the ca- thing, continue right? to pick up points as we move forward because my guys are all still in it. 
Yeah, I had Duke and Arizona. So that's the thing. Mm. I, I picked a lot of good periphery teams, but you're probably still winning over me because you're still alive with those four. Just so. playing the long game, which is yeah. always my strategy. The marathon. So, yeah, exactly. Marathon, marathon over this NCAA tournament. <laughs> you want to get into the women's stuff before we yeah, get into our let's questions? let's do that. Take yeah. us off here because they are coming off of a huge win on Saturday yes. to start the NCAA tournament. Yeah, so of course, when all of you listen to this on Tuesday, uh, there will have another game have happened now on Monday, but we're going to hit very quickly on Saturday where the Nova women did win 76-259 at the Finneran Pavilion over Cleveland State. I was there. It was awesome. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, at the end of this episode, we're going to time travel a little bit, and mm-hmm. I am going to record a some quick reaction to the game that does happen on Monday night against Florida Gulf Coast. So a little bit of time traveling inception there. We're going to jump back and forth. Bear with us. Spare with us. I promise we'll break it out. I'll give you a little transition sound to know when uh, when we've moved to the future, and uh, we'll have some fun with that. But looking at this game against Cleveland State first, Maddie was Maddie, uh, 35 points for her, including 1,000 points on the season. Only the fifth women's basketball player in history to do that. Uh, Christina Dulce was a beast on the boards. She finished with 16 and had 13 of those boards in the first half. And the role players played really, really well. Uh, Caitlin O'Reill hit some important threes, and Bella Runyon was just everywhere and filled in very nicely for Lucy Olsen, who struggled with some foul trouble. Uh, The Finn was popping. The Finn was loud. And Nova's got around a 32 game on Monday night. I I think it's poignant to point out that the 76 to 59 doesn't even tell the full story. Too. That is correct. Fourth because quarter Cleveland was a little State, Cleveland State never was in this game. And obviously they did well in, in that fourth quarter, those final 10 minutes. But Villanova was all over this one easy. No chance of that 13 upset. Um, Jerry Quinn left us a good question about the the biggest surprise of the Villanova women's season. And I'll, mm-hmm. I want to touch on it here because I Let's think it's, it. it's good to do it here. We, we know Maddie Segrist, and that means opposing teams know yeah. Maddie Segrist. The issue isn't containing her because I think she's proven that that's not possible. 35 against Cleveland State. And, and the teams like UConn and I think they lost to Creighton earlier this season – they do a better job of limiting her, and that means under 25 points, which is still absolutely absurd. But what it comes down to for opposing teams is limiting the perimeter staff, the rest of the the players on this roster, the Dulcies, the Olsons, the, Bur- the Burks, and then the Runyons and the Orioles off the bench. I thought Villanova, the way they played on Saturday night is the way that they need to play for the rest of this tournament. And those numbers certainly don't pop off the page, Dalsey's scored more than four points before Olsen more than nine, et cetera. But having those three, three threes from Runyon, having those Mm -hmm. 16 rebounds from Christina Dalsey, that's just providing different wrinkles for the opposing team to take into account. And I think that's what makes Villanova dangerous and takes them to the different level because they can become one dimensional when it's just Maddie chucking up shots when they have more threats. That's when it looks like this is a team that can make a deep run. You nailed it on Cleveland State. I was perplexed at their strategy of allowing Maddie to receive the ball in one-on-one situations in the high to mid post because at that point, it's over. Uh, she she has a bevy of post moves that she's able to go to, and her release is so high, it's difficult for that shot to get blocked, and she just took advantage of continuing being able to get in the lane and finding those shots. To go to Jerry's question, I took it two ways. First, if I, again, go out to the long game of it, um, biggest surprise is that 
the impact that Denise Dillon has made mm. in just three years. I mean, look at it when she came came in here. Uh, Villanova had been to just one of the last seven NCAA tournaments. What does she do? She's now taken them in year three to back-to-back tournaments. This year, they had the highest ranking in, in program history at number 10 in the AP poll. Uh, they've got a player that was on the an, an AP All-American, very well maybe the national player of the year. And that it things are moving in such a nice direction. That is my big surprise is how quickly Denise has been able to come in. And then if you look at the season as a whole, I also answer similar to you. It's the progression of a, of a Lucy Olsen and Christina Dalsay. Uh Olsen has gotten so much better year to year. I, you know, I, I tweeted it and in interacting with the full 40 guys. She does everything right. She's so intelligent with the ball in her hand. She, her off ball movement, her defense. I'm so impressed with her. And Dalsay has really been able to turn into more of a scorer. For, for Villanova as they needed that down low, of course, with her size. So I, I love it. I've had so much fun watching this team all season long, and I'm so proud of all the attention they are getting right now. Yeah, it's well-balanced. We have been talking about it for years, it feels like, at this point now. But now, was it another sellout at the fan? I think I heard that. Just about. I mean, you had yeah. four schools in there, too. So the, the not all the seats were full, but it's probably because the Washington State, Florida Gulf Coast crowd uh, thinned out a little bit as it moved <laughs> into the second game. Yeah, <laughs> I did see shirts for, for both teams, uh, even cool. while I was there for Villanova. So um, and there was a lot of green for for Cleveland State in their section. But of course, the, the fin was taken over by Nova fans, as it should be. President Joe Biden has the Villanova women winning the NCAA tournament. Love that for him. Yeah, of course, Joe Biden went to Villanova, so absolutely no bias there. No, but it's just cool that that they are on this national stage, that they have a legitimate shot to at least make the Sweet 16, playing Florida Gulf Coast on Monday, like we mentioned. And then at some point, they're probably going to have to face up against the number one seed, Indiana, in their region, which will Mm -hmm. be a tough draw no matter which way you slice it. But honestly, in any region, there's a powerhouse at the top. Those four one seeds are absolutely ridiculous. So we're just riding Villanova. Again, this is the team that you should be watching in March from now on. Monday night at 7. Tune in. Should be an awesome game. Let's do it. And for those Florida Gulf Coast uh, Eagles, they are, of course, a 12 seed, but they should not be a 12 yeah. seed. One of the most bizarre things I've ever seen, actually, they closed that game. So when it opened as favorites over Washington State. As a 12 seed, they were one and a half point favorites. The, the seeding was just miserable on them. They are 33 and three. They are very talented. They make and shoot a lot of threes. How many to be exact? They have taken over 1,100 three pointers this year. That is number one in the country. So perimeter defense for the Cats is going to be very important on Monday night. Yeah, and shooting of their own. The the mm-hmm. times they've lost this season, UConn mostly, especially, yes. limited them from three. So this is when you're going to see the Runyons and the Burke and the Mullins and, and Maddie obviously need to step up and that shooting's got to be hot early. Well, it was fun to hit on the really positive part of Villanova in March. <laughs> you, you want to move to scene. Yes, you want to move to the, the season in review here for the men? Yeah, let's do it. So as we mentioned at the top, we're going to lead with the listener questions. A part of that is because a lot of the questions that Pat and I came up with on our own were also asked by the listeners. So we're going to we're going to let that be the start. But I think it's worth setting the scene a little bit and talking about some numbers, unfortunately. And you actually mentioned this on Thursday's episode, Pat. Exactly even is how this mm-hmm. team is going to be remembered. 17 and 17 after the loss to Liberty in the NIT, 10 and 10 in, in um, 
conference standings, which is exactly what Ken Palm predicted, which we scoffed at at the beginning of the season. How do you feel about that, Mark, especially thinking about Kyle Neptune's legacy after year one? Oof, I'm not ready to to start the legacy question on Kyle Neptune yet, but we we will hit Neptune. Um, I think 17 and 17 is fair when, when we come down to this season. There were ups and there were downs and there were probably more downs and ups and yet they still found a way to claw out a 500 record, which I do think is important and does... Um, you know, does favor positively as we look back that they were able to get to that despite all the adversity they had to face. Uh, you know, looking in on that record, 17 losses, that's the most since 2011, 2012, when they did go 13 and 19. The only other time over the last 20 years, Villanova has had 17 or more losses was 2004. And then just to show how spoiled we've all been uh, over the last three years before this year, the program as a whole had 22 losses over that's that insane. over wow. that three year span. Um, you know, talk about 17 and 17 feeling right for for what we watched this season. You know, basketball is often referred to as a series of runs. This season was a series of runs. And and listen to this. Um, they had six separate stretches of games with either three straight wins or three straight losses or more. And what were those? Four straight losses to Michigan State, Iowa State, Portland, and Oregon. Five straight wins then follow that against Oklahoma, Penn, Boston College, St. Joe's, and St. John's. A pair of three-game Big East losing streaks to Xavier, DePaul, um, and oh no, I messed that one up. At Xavier, Butler. At Butler, thank you. I say I wrote, I wrote DePaul twice. I'm like that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well as Providence, Marquette, and Creighton, and a pair of three-game winning streaks against DePaul, Seton Hall, and Butler, and Xavier, Creighton, and Seton oh, Hall. Oh, Pat, you're on it today. I love it. It, it that's wild how streaky this team was where if they were losing they were most likely going to continue losing and if they were winning they found ways to get hot yeah i'm looking at it now if there were actually any points of the season where it was win loss literally the last three games they beat seton hall lost to yukon beat georgetown lost to creighton that was the yeah. only time where there was one specifically in a row that is unbelievable and I think it encompasses our feelings towards this team pretty well. When there were highs, there were highs, and there were people, including us, to be totally honest with you, that thought that this team could make a really deep run in the Big East tournament. And when there were lows, whether that was at the beginning of the season in non-conference play to Portland and Oregon, or back-to-back losses at DePaul and at Butler, where we wondered if this team would even break even. So we're going to be answering i think we should leave this question towards the end but we'll we'll finish up here with how we remember this season and what mm-hmm. went wrong here and i think it is a lot of what could have been and i think it's fair to be disappointed but it's also astute to have some perspective and realize how unrealistic the uh expectations for this Certainly. team might have been coming into this season yeah i think we'll hit a lot more of that when we look back at Kyle Neptune's first year and, yeah. and how we we look at him for for that question. Um, but see, I've clearly I, I had put the Butler game out of my mind. Um, so thank you for <laughs> for helping me out there. You want to move into some of the the questions from the listeners? Yeah, let's do it again. We're gonna do this at the end of the episode too. But so so grateful for everyone who left us a question this year. It truly made our lives so much easier and so much more fun that we that we were able to frame a lot of these episodes based off the listener questions we got and end off with most of them on our Thursday episode. So thank you so much. And we weren't disappointed again for the last time this year with a really great mailbag. Never are. And always love interacting with everyone. 
So we will kick things off with John Palme. And if I skip around on some of your questions, and it's because we've either already hit them or are going to hit them later. But first question from him, what are the top three improvements for the team and coaches that need to be addressed this offseason? Yeah, this is a good one to start with because it is so all-encompassing, obviously. Um, I think improvements, it'll come down to when the team was at its worst this year. And the big one that steps out or sticks out to me is team defense. Mm. And when I think about this season, one of the things that I think of first is that it didn't feel like the majority of the time that the game plan matched the personnel that was on this team. This was not a good three-point shooting team with not a lot of great perimeter shooters, but they still shot more threes than almost every team in the country. And this wasn't a team that was great defensively, and they had one of the hardest defensive schemes with switching and trying to keep up and trying to take advantage of mismatches that the defenders just weren't really equipped to do. So that's the one that sticks out to me the most, the most just trying to either work on uh, defense for the returning players. And then obviously in the transfer portal, it's no secret that Villanova will have to bring some guys into the program this year, just based on numbers and filling holes. I think looking for really good defensive players should be a top priority. Yeah, uh, I'll hit it at a more high level part because then I think we'll dig into some of these answers on the what went wrong question that we'll address towards the end here. So high level uh, top three improvements. I want to see more shooting. I would like to see more size and I'd like to see better late game execution. Mm. And those would be top top three things I really want to look for for this team as we move into the next season. Tell me a little bit more about more shooting. What do you mean by that? Guys that can shoot the basketball, preferably, mm. because Philadelphia, as they proved this year, did not have many of those. Yeah. And I, I can go into it then. I was going to save it for a little later, but uh, make sure I have it up in front of me here. But, you know, you nailed it on the, the three-point shooting. And that's what, for as we go to the, the transfer portal, that's what I want to see them, them really address here. Uh, this was the third worst three-point shooting team for Villanova in the last 20 years. However, I actually think you will look back on it being the worst because... Uh, of those other two teams that did shoot worse than this year's team, they had taken 35 and 34 percent of their attempts from three. Those were in 2012 and 2013, and that landed them anywhere from like 110th in the country to 140th in threes per field goal attempt. This year's team shot 48 percent of their field goal attempts from three, seventh most in the country. And again, they ended as the third worst three-point shooting team in Villanova history over the last 20 years. It made no sense. They, If they are going to continue to play at that philosophy, which I think a lot of us will expect them to do so with it being Villanova and how things have been built lately, they need to bring in more shooters. Brendan Hawson is going to be there and preferably be able to give them that lift. But, you know, as you said, the personnel just didn't match this year. So they need to bring in guys that can shoot. I hope a lot of people feel seen by the numbers that you just read off. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's okay. You're not crazy. This was a very bad three-point shooting team, and there really was no rhyme or reason that we can come up with for why they continued to play that way. And there were some <laughs> some stark losses down the stretch that that really put that into uh 
into light but yeah those are great numbers we we talked at the beginning of the year pat i am sick of hearing about the 2012 villanova i know i know let's just please let's wrap that one away hide it in a closet never talk about it again yeah unfortunately i I now think that this will be the uh the quote-unquote rock bottom 2022 2023 numbers that we have to come back to but but that's i mean we can hope so it's definitely a little bit extreme hopefully (laughs) this is this is the worst it is under kyle neptune yeah yeah, so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more for the how do you remember this year. Uh, second question, what is your personal definition of Villanova basketball? And did this year's team exemplify it? I think that's a really good question. You take this one first. Sure. For Villanova basketball, I mean, the, the most important thing is just playing within yourselves, playing smart, moving the basketball, hitting threes, uh, you know, playing really strong team defense and, and being there for each other on it. I do not think this year's team uh, exemplified it. Ball movement-wise, they struggled immensely. There was a lot of isolation offense that really played into the fact that this team wasn't able to get into an offensive rhythm in in many games. Defensively, they struggled, especially earlier on in the season perimeter-wise. Now, there is a very big reason for that because Cam Whitmore and Justin and Justin Moore were not on the floor. Jordan Longino missed extended time. I think that got better throughout the year, but... You know, when I think back to the, to this year's team and I say, oh, there, there have to be plenty of moments where I think of making that extra pass, finding an open three, passing up the, the good shot for the great shot. How many good looks did this team even get this year? Not that many. How many great looks did they get? Very few. So I, I look back at it and I say, that's what I want them to get back to. I don't think we saw it that much this year. And you can tell me if I'm being too harsh. No, I, I think it's true. Uh, this was a hard question for me to answer because I felt like there were so many different ways to take it. So I thought that was really good high-level defense, ball movement, guards backing down the big guys, etc. There was part of me that thought, when I think of Villanova basketball, I think of taking charges and putting your body on the line to get the ball to your teammate. And I mm-hmm. think that did happen. I, did. We've, we've mentioned it a lot. There was no shortage of effort, heart, desire, on this team. I, I don't think that was ever the issue. And you saw right. guys like Chris Arch, Chris Archie Diakono step into the energy role and provide that off the bench, which was really unexpected and nice. On the flip side, when we talk about Villanova as a system program, I think that was turned on its head a little bit when Cam Whitmore, as good of a prospect as he was and is, decided to come to Villanova. And I think a lot of us wondered how he would look in this type of system program, plus throwing that Jay Wright wasn't there to man it. And that is a lot of questions. The funny thing is that we didn't see Cam Whitmore take over the program and have it be a one-man show. We didn't see anybody do that. Mm -hmm. But Villanova didn't thrive because of that. You you get where I'm going there? Like we could have seen just, we could have seen uh, Cam Whitmore, excuse me, be the one-man show. And who knows, maybe that would have been better. But instead, he was just a cog in the machine, and it didn't make Villanova better because of it. So I'm personally curious about what this means for the future of five-star recruits of Villanova, period. What Cam Whitmore's legacy at Villanova will be like, because I think there's no question that he's one of the most talented players that the program has ever seen. But again, it didn't one-to-one translate to success. So... No, it was not the normal Villanova basketball we've seen, but I'm also not worried that the same type of attitude, to be cliche about it, is going to go away because I think that still burns pretty brightly. 
Yeah, I, I think you still go after those top line guys, but you definitely need to make sure that we are prioritizing who is a fit here. And I mm-hmm. loved watching Cam play basketball at Villanova, but it's also impossible to shy away from the fact that the fit wasn't great stylistically. I mean, all, all the highlight plays and everything that he brought with athleticism, it was great. He helped them win games. But I mean, the number that I cannot draw my eyes away from And he did not get a lot of help in this category, but he had 18 assists in almost 700 minutes. 18. That, I believe I I had seen the stat on The Athletic that he will have the lowest assist rate for any lottery wing pick ever. Um, It's just, now he didn't have shooters around him to be able to kick the ball to, but there were also many times where it felt like Villanova was running an offense, the ball would go into Whitmore's hands, and not much else initiated off of it other than Cam either going for a a pull-up three or trying to get to the basket there. As I said, I still, I think Cam was a strong player for this team, made a a good impact, but he did not fit them uh, stylistically, and the assist number is the clearest one to point to. Yeah, that's that's pretty insane that it's literally the most ever. We used the word forcing a lot when we talked about Cam all season long. He felt like he had to force it because the offense wasn't equipped around him. And again, I just keep coming back to like, as a result, would it have been better for Cam to just take over this offense and do everything on his own? We don't know that way. He's obviously a grounded enough young man to know that that wasn't going to fly in Villanova's program. There had to have been something that drew him to Villanova in the first place. And I think you did see glimpses of that, but it certainly isn't translating to one of the most memorable five-star recruits that mm-hmm. ever came to Villanova. He's memorable in terms of the highlights, just mm-hmm. unfortunately not going to hit the same heights as a, you know, obviously a Jalen Brunson hit or Jeremiah Robinson Earl fit so nicely into, into the system that Villanova was running. Again, he didn't get help. This was a very difficult time for him to come in with all the, the rockiness around it and the, lack of cohesion across the entire team i just don't think that he fit in very nicely with uh with the rest of the pieces there but there's still a balance you need to strike because it the both sets of people in the extremes here are wrong of the oh you can't go after these five-star kids they just don't fit villanova that's ridiculous give me Mm -hmm. talented kids they're gonna go to the nba i want those but we also should not be discounting uh, or just saying, oh, we'll only go after the two and three star recruits that we think are, are going to be a fit here. There has to be a blend. There will be a blend. And I think that's what you'll see Villanova try and get back to going forward, where you see some five stars mixed in, as well as guys that fit the program, a la Jordan Dumont, who I'm very excited to see go into this team next year. Agreed. I completely forgot the question we were even answering. Because exactly, because we, we went Cam Whitmore. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to come up at some point, right? <laughs> had to, had to. Uh, and then last one we kind of touched on a little bit, but Maddie and the rest of the team locked in. How far will they go? Yeah, I, I think facing Indiana in what? That would be the Sweet 16. Sweet 16. If they can beat Indiana, that would be pretty yeah. insane because, again, they are one of the best teams in the country. But I think anything less than that would be a disappointment the way they looked in the first round. I think they can pretty handedly take care of Florida Gulf Coast. Certainly hope they can beat Florida Gulf Coast. As you mentioned, uh, difficult draw in Indiana. Indiana is one of the best offensive teams in the country. This region is really, really difficult. While it doesn't have a UConn uh, or a South Carolina, um, three of the five All-Americans are in this region. Uh, you know, Maddie Segrist, of course, from Villanova, Angel Reese from LSU, and then Mackenzie Holmes 
from Indiana. That just goes to to some of the top end talent in this region. Uh, also, none of the top seeds have lost. Washington State was overseeded. Uh, Florida Gulf Coast was underseeded. That's your five seed uh, going down. Otherwise, your one, two, and three ahead of Villanova are still in this thing with Utah and LSU along with Indiana. So it's a tough road. I mean, there's so much talent on this Villanova team. Can you rule out an Elite Eight, a Final Four? I don't think you can, but they would have a very difficult matchup. It would no longer be a home game uh, against Indiana as well if that is how the cards end up falling. So difficult draw, but they can do it with yeah. the talent and, and how they're playing right now. So yeah. I, I say, how far can they go? They can go to a Final Four. Absolutely, they can be in Texas. It's just going to be tough, and they're going to have to play very good basketball. Yeah. Yes, they will. Uh, speaking of the women's team, uh, Big Tasty, who always appreciate the questions, um, how many signatures do we need to make sure the men's team gets the women's team script uniforms that they wore yesterday, next year? So cool. They're awesome. I love those unis. It's funny because I think Tommy G was the one who made this correlation here that the Liberty uniforms that Villanova saw when they played yes. them in the NIT were basically carbon copies of the Villanova women's uniforms, which is pretty awesome. But I think they're sick. I love them. One of my favorite, honestly, uniforms ever. We're going to have to have Matt St. Jean on to, to yes. bring, bring this uniform into his little bracket here. But they do well in them and they look pretty sweet. So I'm all for it. That they most certainly do. So would love those get added to the rotation um, on the men's side. Just bring back the 2018 throwbacks. That's all yeah, I ask seriously. for. Villanova, please. It's simpler times. I got a, I got a question just going off of this conversation here. And I know that people have been talking about it a little bit. One of the best parts of the women's tournament is the home court advantage. Do you think, or what will it take for that to be in the men's NCAA tournament? Never. It will really? never, it will never happen because the NCAA will not. Um, th these are such draws to be able to continue to move these regions around like this and be able to sell out all these arenas. Um, I, I will be shocked if the men ever adopt this. I mean, when you see the difference between the Finneran Pavilion and I don't even the Indianapolis Colts Stadium, that's where, <laughs> where they played last year, right? Like, obviously, that's that's pretty stark, but it is just so cool to play at your home court. But then the, the other thing is where things get dicey. And of course, this just goes into the, some of the corrupt practices here. But Auburn basically played a home game against one seed Houston on Saturday. In Birmingham, right? Yeah. Yeah. Birmingham, yeah. Alabama. So you get stuff like that. And I don't, I don't, I feel for Houston why they're probably hoping for home court advantage here. But yes, it all comes down to money. It's a business, but I still think it would be pretty cool. Yes, it definitely adds in an extra wrinkle and Houston most definitely hoping to get to that final four to play yeah. in a hometown final four it would definitely be interesting. Um, let's take Matt Berger's next because it can take us. A, it, we'll hit a couple important topics here. What do you think the top offseason priorities are? So I, I it's, of course, impossible to look at this Villanova team without looking at the transfer portal. Um, and that's where they're most likely going to have to go. Uh, as we look at incomings, Jordan Dumont is your only incoming as of right now for 2023 in the recruiting class as a wing player. What are you looking at for the transfer portal? Yeah, I, I think it's hard to even talk about the transfer portal without talking about who stays and who goes. So can I start with that? Let's start there then. Yeah. All right. Because I think it just makes linear sense here. Mm -hmm. So goes the obvious ones. Caleb Daniels and Brandon Slater have graduated and taken their fifth year. Cam Whitmore, aforementioned lottery pick. I believe Justin Moore will will leave Villanova uh, and test the waters in the NBA draft. 
And then we mentioned on Thursday's episode, Trey Patterson did not play in the NIT tournament, which I think is a uh, a hint here that he is going to to transfer out of the Villanova program. So that's five guys. Mm. That means who stays. Chris Argidiakno will probably take his fifth year. I believe Eric Dixon will stay for one more year. Longino, Armstrong, Hawson, and Nana Njoku, and hopefully he gets a healthy year under his belt. Yeah. That leaves six players in the program. That's pretty absurd. And I think Dixon is turning into more of a wild card than maybe we thought at the beginning of the season. Um, But now going into top priorities, point guard has been something that Villanova has needed for over a year now. That should be the number one thing. Uh, Before we get to the size point, I think scoring off the bench will be really important because right now I don't have Hawson in my starting five. No, me either. Mostly because of the defensive liabilities that he's shown over the course of the season. So would love to have his scoring, but they're going to need some, some true guys that can come off the bench. I think the fact that Villanova was deep this year was a nice different thing. We've, we've talked about the quality versus quantity of guys and bodies coming off of the bench. But I just go back to that 2018 season where they, they were like, seven eight deep at times Mm -hmm. and that just makes you really really dangerous and then size another thing that has been the buzzword over villanova for at least a year switch dicks into the four if he stays get in a true center who can keep up with the calc brenners and i I actually think jack dungy has one more season of eligibility which is absolutely absurd i think that's true i think he's got one more so who knows if he'll stay but keep up with the other big men in the conference and i think this just adds another wrinkle to Villanova's offense if they're able to put a score in a ball hander like Dixon in the five get better rebounding and defensive numbers when you have Mm. a true size guy in the five spot yeah we are aligned on our expectations for staying and going I also believe Justin Moore will opt for professional or at least exploring professional uh career here remember he's already been here for four years Mm -hmm. um if he wants to go, it would make sense to to start on that. Now, there's a chance Justin Moore can come back. I I, I don't put it as a, it's 100% that he's gone, but I would expect him to start there. And I do think Trey Patterson will also follow him, uh, follow him this time through a transfer portal, not not professionally. Uh, but to your point, you know, no one is safe for mm-hmm. for this Villanova roster right now. I believe Armstrong, Hawes, and Arch Dixon and Njoku will stay. But that does not mean they will. And where is a place you can get an, not an exact, but a pretty close parallel right now is just look at Butler. You would say, oh, they held on to most of their roster when they changed over from Laval Jordan to Thad Mata. Well, Thad Mata just had year one here back at Butler and Chuck Harris, Miles Tate, and Jaden Taylor have all entered the transfer portal. Guys that are really important to Butler and, and what they've been building there. So no one is uh, is a definite to come back, especially as we are in this new transfer portal uh, era here in college basketball. But that's at least how I see things shaking out. We go into the portal, need to add scoring punch, need to add size. Um, you know, that five, I think would be great. I'm all for a shift in philosophy there, especially on the interior defense, to be able to add some extra help because Villanova got torched there many, many times over this season. And then a couple guys that I just say, keep an eye out for. This does not mean that I think they're coming here, but they could be potential fits. You know, you start local 
for two of them. And first off, first one's a name you'll definitely recognize. Uh, Jameer Nelson Jr., of course, father was the standout at St. Joe's, went on to the big NBA career, uh, started his career at George Washington, been at Delaware, looking to finish out uh, his college career, averaged over 20 points a game last season, more as a combo guard. He'd help fortify the guard line. A guy I know we really like because we talked about him a ton at the beginning of the season, Khalif Battle from Temple has entered the transfer portal, bring him back to the Big East. He started his collegiate career uh, at Butler. 6'5 score can really help add a little bit of size and a lot of punch. Um, Center is the tough one because there isn't a total fit that I've seen so far there. Uh, Eddie Lampkin's probably your highest profile center. He's the guy actually that had uh, entered the portal from TCU right before they played in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Just showing you how uh, rough that relationship broke down. But why it's also difficult to go into full transfer mode right now, and this is how broken this system is, if you'll notice, the players uh, that are currently in the transfer portal mostly are from teams that are not currently playing basketball right now. The teams that are currently in the NCAA tournament are not fully focused on bringing in transfers right now, nor have the whole pool of players available come out yet because they are still playing imagine major league baseball free agency if your team was eliminated at the end of september and then could start signing free agents while the other teams played in the postseason it makes no sense right now uh and that's the wild west that we currently live in so there are going to be more guys available there may be some better fits but these are just the ones that i'm looking at for now and i will get off my uh soapbox that was exactly what I was hoping for it to be. I knew that you hated the the system, but we, yeah, that system. was really good. The bogus part, and I want to talk about the, the coaching carousel a little bit too, because that is also full of flaws. There's no reason to just set a deadline because Villanova could also, and teams have done this before, sign a guy or sign a guy because you were talking about free agency, um, bring a guy into their program and then somebody else from let's say a Gonzaga that could potentially win the NCAA tournament becomes a transfer and Villanova could realize that actually he was a better fit. So I think it is prudent to stand pat for a while until you see the full field. But I also understand why you want to be one of the first teams to go after a player because he could get snatched up first. Yeah. So when you play it out like that, it's kind of a lose lose unless you are 100% (laughs) positive that, he is the guy and Khalif battle was on their list for years and years, blah, blah, blah. You can go down, down the rabbit hole there. But if you feel strongly about that portion, I feel strongly about the coaching debate. I absolutely cannot believe that coaches and teams are allowed to sign coaches, talk about coaching rumors before every team has finished playing. The fact that Ed Cooley's potential change to Georgetown was a bigger storyline then Providence's game against Kentucky in the round of 64 is a true injustice. And I get that Cooley, right. I get that Cooley is a big deal and going to Georgetown would be a big deal and all the ties and rumors circulating, but that sucks for everyone (laughs) involved. That's true. It's not some, some great insight here. It just sucks. And I don't understand how as a college athlete, you're able to keep your focus while all of that is happening. And I think it's just unfortunate and it's unfortunate that Providence's season is going to be really encapsulated by all of that down the stretch and wondering what Cooley was going to do. But you could say the same about all of these coaches. And I think it's Mm -hmm. fun when we can say, oh, like Tobin Anderson, I believe is the name of the coach at Fairleigh Dickinson. It's cool to think about what he can do now that he won where he can go. Same thing with Shaheen Holloway at St. Peter's last year. 
but let's just wait until it ends on April 3rd or 4th or whenever it is. It's not that far away. Just pause everything until then so that you can get a nice bookend for the season. That's only worth it and only fair to the players and coaches involved. Uh, if only it was possible, but instead Man. the NCAA has chosen chaos because there are no regulations around anything. I guess it's too easy. Yeah, it it's is too, too smart and too easy to just do it that way. Exactly. Uh, we'll hit this one really quick, or I, I can grab it from from Sean about what is recruiting looking like. We did a little bit more of a deep dive on this uh, a couple episodes ago. 2023, it is Jordan Dumont, as we mentioned, a player that I think he can get excited about for, for the fit that he can bring in. You know, international player originally from Canada and playing his high school ball down in Tennessee. There's always potential a Sadiq Bay-like signing happens where a kid decommits from somewhere and then comes in late, though I wouldn't bet on it. So it looks like Nova's most likely at one. Chris Parker was kind of the last guy they were hot on uh, in this recruiting class, and he very recently committed to Alabama over Villanova. Uh, 2024, they are in on a bevy. Uh, of recruit. So I would expect to see that pick back up then. Um, and it's also an incredibly fair criticism to look at this coaching staff and say they dropped the ball here in year one, plenty of different variables for why I think that went into it. We've gone into it before, so I won't do it again, but that is how the recruiting pass currently looking. Yeah. And I think you had a really good point whenever the last time we talked about it was that you can be upset, but to know that they're in so heavily on so many guys in 2024, I think just highlights the fact that this was just a weird year for everybody involved. And that's why they're going to hit the transfer portal yeah. so heavily too. Expect two or three names in the transfer portal because yeah. they're going to need to do it. Yeah, um, I have one more point before yeah. before we move on, just about the transfer portal, who stays, who goes, projected starting fire for next year, all of that. I don't think we can understate the fact of how important it is to keep Mark Armstrong mm-hmm. happy in this program. Yes. We've mentioned it a few times now, but I just want to, make it clear like he has the potential to be the best player on this roster the starting point guard the starting shooting guard whatever they see his future being but I think the absolute worst thing that can happen is for Villanova to go heavy in the transfer portal and for Armstrong to feel like he's being slighted in any way so I don't think that has happened so far and I think he understands his ceiling at Villanova but it is kind of a tricky line to follow here because obviously point guard is such a need for Villanova, but then what does that make Armstrong's role look like? Just something to watch there. Uh, Certainly is, which is why I'm hoping if they bring in a guard, it's to start with Mark rather than start over him. Um, But definitely with you there, some questions coming in from, from Tom Zhang. What does the coaching staff look like next year? Yeah. So we we've heard rumors about Halkovich what that might look like. Bucknell, I think, was the school. Am I right yep, in that? Correct. So you wonder if it's going to be more internal shifting or if they do do go outside to bring in an associate or an assistant or wherever that leveling ends up. I think it's somebody internal, if I'm if I'm being honest. You agree with me there? They're in a tough, goes. They're in a tough spot because if, if Halkovich goes, which I'm still very surprised even that he stayed this season, I think it would have made sense for him to exit last year. Um, but he was a good soldier and, and stayed for an additional year to try and help steady the ship with Kyle. It makes a ton of sense for him to go out uh, and hopefully get his own head coaching role. Why they're in a tough position is because it feels like they almost have to promote a Nardi or an Anderson to associate head coach. Uh, I would think Nardi just because he's been on the staff a little longer 
because say they bring in someone from outside Villanova. Now you're Mike Nardi. Now you're Dwayne Anderson. Not only were you overlooked to be the head coach of Villanova when Kyle Neptune came in, you were then not promoted to associate head coach when George Halkovich left. And again, this is all potential stuff. I can't imagine that would sit particularly well, just thinking from a, from a personal standpoint. So I find that to be a, a very tough internal conflict that Villanova may have to go through on this staff and why my expectation is if Alkovich goes, Nardi will move to associate head coach uh, and they'll fill in uh, another um, you know, assistant role. Mm-hmm. You could look to a guy like Ashley Howard that has the that coaching experience uh, from inside, well, outside the program where he was a head coach and, of course, inside the program knowing the fam- familiarity with it. This is not an easy fill for whatever happens for Villanova. There are going to be consequences no matter what they do. So I'm very intrigued on this storyline. Yeah, me too. Well said. Uh, we kind of talked about it for looking at potentially adding a big to, to be able to ship Dixon to the four. And then our uh, outside question here, World Baseball Classic, keep it, move it, or kill it. Oh, God. You know <laughs> you know how I feel, and he knows how I feel. I think the World <laughs> Baseball Classic is absolutely phenomenal. Saturday night, they had a huge Team USA, had a huge comeback win over Venezuela, who was Venezuela? one of the powerhouses of the tournament. I absolutely love it. You could argue about timing and where it goes and injuries and all of that, but I think it is absolutely phenomenal for baseball and based on the viewership numbers and the exposure that it's gotten, I think it has only proved to bring good results so far. Uh, First shout out to all the Villanova and Mets fans that are out there uh, like myself, like the Chris Nataros, like the Chris Lanes, like the Tom Zags that I know why this question uh, comes up because of our, the loss of, of Edwin Diaz here. I've really enjoyed the world baseball classic and I always have, I still, I would shift the timing and I would have it played in January. I hate the, the right before the season. I think it's so hard for them to be able to do that. I mean, look at other international tournaments that get played you think of you know the olympics and basketball it's played in the summer during the off season it's not played directly before the nba season starts look at the world cup as normal not this disaster of a one that that just happened in qatar where it's usually played over the summer uh between seasons i see no reason why they can't move this thing play it in all warm weather which is normally how they do it anyway uh move it to january and be able to let these guys have a little bit more time of ramp up and then ramp down and then ramp up again rather than trying to push them so far but we don't. We will not go further into a baseball. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't go too much further no. into it. But no. it, it's an interesting point. It's definitely it, was some something that a lot of people have brought up. And uh, as of Sunday morning, Jose Altuve has a broken right thumb. He's out yeah. for six to eight weeks. It's, eight uh, to ten weeks, I think it was. Yeah, I, I think you are right. Question from Jack McCall: From what we saw from Mark and Brendan this year, how do you see them growing? What will you be saying about them three years from now? Yeah, I like that question because it's thinking towards the future a little bit. Um, I'll answer one of the questions that Pat and I have thought of, and it was who needs to step up next year. And Mm. I have Brendan Hawes in here, and I think it comes defensively so that he can get more minutes. The the way that the rotation changed because of him, you obviously saw them use a zone when he played. You saw that shift away from that a little bit, but then he just got less minutes down the stretch of the season because – they were in such defensive battles that Neptune couldn't even risk having Hawson in for a possession. When that happens, you don't get the best three-point shooter on the team on the floor. So that can't happen. It can't be one or the other next year, depending on how this team looks, obviously. But I would love to see him, whether it's strength and conditioning-wise, 
defensive drills, just getting him more up to par so that he can play more. Because this Villanova team, Kyle Neptune said it, he has the chance to be one of the best shooters that Villanova has ever seen. And in terms of Mark Armstrong, I think we've both made it extremely clear that we can see him being a team leader. We can see him being a four-year player that is, again, following in the line of of guard university, one of some of the best guards that Villanova's seen. Yeah, no, I I like that a lot. Uh, I'll start with Armstrong there too, where I think three years from now, as long as he stays, uh, this is the guy that's getting the keys to the program. Um, hopefully next year, getting the keys to the program and being able to make some some big strides. I want to see him continue to cut down on the turnovers and the amount of loose balls that we see from him and, and work on that three-point shot to be able to give him a little bit more of a well-rounded game because we know about the explosiveness uh, around the rim. For Hawson, uh, Brendan Hawson is what we were promised in Cole Swider is how I look mm. at it, where this is a guy that really does feel automatic from beyond the arc. And I do feel that there's some defensive potential there with Swider. There was none. And that's why he ended up transferring out to Syracuse though, to his credit. I know he's been hanging on with the the Lakers a little bit and, and with their G league team. So good for Cole uh, there, but I, I think Brendan has the potential to become a better defender. And I do think you're going to see an uptick in minutes. I'm not sure I'm going to pencil him in as a starter for next year, but he absolutely should be as this team is currently constituted and we know things are going to shift, but as of right now, he should be the guy that gets the most minutes off the bench because he can give them a really nice scoring punch. That's exactly what I had him slotted in for that role as of now. There you go. And then we will finish with our main man before we move into some, some final questions that, that we put together here, Jerry Quinn, he's got a couple. Uh, We hit his first one already. Um, How many current Nova players return? How many leave via the portal? So we know we've answered that second question here. Give a letter grade to every player on this year's team. Now, Jerry, you know, we did an entire episode on this at, at the midseason mark, so we could really talk about this. So I did put it together. I'm not going to give rationale, um, and I'm just going to go through it very quickly because we genuinely could spend an hour uh, on this. Don't take <laughs> this as this. final <laughs> as well, because, Jerry, the question came in not too long before we started recording. So I went first, like gut reaction on these without really breaking them down. Um, but mine are Eric Dixon, B plus Caleb Daniels, B minus Brandon Slater, B minus Chris Archdiakono, C Jordan Longino, C plus Mark Armstrong, B minus Cam Whitmore, B minus Brendan Hawes and C plus Nana and Joku incomplete and Trey Patterson. I unfortunately did give an F. Um, Interesting. that is how I wrap mine up again. Not a ton of thought went into it. That was more just the first thing that came into my head when I saw the question. I'm trying to think if there's any stark differences from our midterm grades. I don't think so. I dropped Caleb down. Yeah, I, I did. brought be Slater up. Uh, I think Longino went down for me. Armstrong went up. Whitmore went slightly down. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not a huge change. I and I I Justin Moore I felt was an incomplete too. I should say that. I, I don't think it's fair to grade Justin um, coming back from there. Um, so. It stayed pretty similar, though there were slight fluctuations. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, the biggest difference is, is how Caleb finished the season. Yeah. I do think Slater should get some props for his, his final few As games. Do I. Um, yeah, the, the interesting ones are, are the freshmen and how they can build upon that in the future. What And last one from him, what was your biggest surprise for the men in the 2022-23 season? Because we already hit the women's question. Yeah, this is this is one that I spent a lot of time thinking about this whole week, really, and, and thinking about final thoughts on this team and how we'll remember this team. I, I think my biggest surprise, and I think you could 
probably take this in a positive or a negative way. I took it a little bit more of a negative way. I was surprised that it took so long full strength for this team to gel. Mm. It felt like all season long, we were waiting for the pieces to come together. I, I had the stats here without uh, Justin Moore and Cam Whitmore. They were in two and five that, that stretch to start the season without Justin Moore, they were 10 and 10. And then without, Jordan Longino, they were three and six, which I think will always be an underrated absence that this team had throughout the season, defensively, especially when everybody was back against Seton Hall, I believe it was. Yeah. And then yeah, they I had that was that Wells Fargo game. Yeah. So they had only those three losses going through the the Big East loss to Creighton, but it just felt like there was always this next gear that we thought would be hit when everybody was healthy and playing. And they had that eight man deep rotation and they had Hawson coming off the bench and hitting threes, but it never feels like that was reached. And they still had those pretty, pretty dominant losses for the other team to Providence to UConn and then to Creighton at the end. So Mm. it just was surprising a little bit that when, this team finally was full strength and they were gaining so many momentum and they did have so many flashes of greatness that that wasn't able to sustain itself for more than a one win in the Big East tournament against a really bad Georgetown team. I think that just goes into that the parts on this year's team did not fit in very well mm-hmm. to, to each other. And that goes back to the Villanova basketball question that we saw. Um, I'll do it quickly because I know we want to start to run through these a little bit. Uh, lack of rebounding for me uh, was what really surprised me. Villanova for the last couple of years, even as a generally undersized team, has done a pretty decent job on the boards and, and being able to hold their own did not feel that that was the case this year. Now, a lot of that happens to come from the loss of Jermaine Samuels, but as we look at it, they were the third lowest rebounding team in the conference. They were the second lowest offensive rebounding team uh, in the conference on top of that. Then overall rebounding numbers are similar to last year, though they are down mostly on the offensive side. And I really do attribute that to Jermaine Samuels. They just didn't have a guy. I think a lot of us thought Brandon Slater would be able to fill that role. You know, you look at the guards, Caleb Daniels, of course, a a very big one, uh, and Cam Whitmore turned into a better rebounder for this team. But I expected them to be able to offset that loss a little bit better down low, and they were not able to. And I think they got burned there more than a couple times. Yeah, and I think you also offset that with having a good offense that can mask (laughs) some of the weaknesses. Yeah, unfortunately, that didn't happen either. And it just puts it into such a stark light when you see how good UConn is at offensive rebounding and yeah. how far that puts them or how high that puts that ceiling. And you see that with a lot of the other big teams in the country when Villanova can't do that rebounding in offense wins in the tournament. And unfortunately they didn't have either. No, no. So l- let's go to some more fun categories here or, <laughs> or, or questions. Cause we're going to have to go back to some of the not fun stuff to, to finish, but best moment of the season for you. So best moment and and game of the year, which we we should answer after this yeah, too. Let's do it. These ones were top up, toss ups for me. So best moment I thought was the sixty four to sixty three win over Xavier. Okay. The fact yep. that Justin Moore hit that big win game ceiling shot that was huge because that was the first time it had happened that season. I thought Villanova played really good defense. That was that stretch of the season where they were limiting really good offensive teams to. 70 or less points they turn turnovers into offense to get that win at home versus Sean Miller versus the team that has a pretty clear track to the sweet 16 if not the elite eight that was freaking awesome and I yeah 
literally was at work when I was watching it and I went to the bathroom for like 15 minutes just so I could watch the game on my phone. So that was really, really cool. I mean, you got to find a way to, to get you it have and, to. and watch Villanova it. basketball there. Yeah. Um, can I pick best moment when Josh Hart was traded to the Knicks mm. <laughs> to, to add in with, with Jalen and him? Uh, for me, it was it's still around Justin. It's just the return. I know they lost that game against Providence, but to see Justin Moore come back out there on the floor and and I'll bang on that drum as we had done all season long. There was no guarantee Justin Moore was going to be able to come back and play coming back from an Achilles that he had suffered in mid-March especially for a team that was struggling you know at that point uh, as well just to see him go back on the floor and then have that run of 12 games here where he did help stabilize things they might not have taken off but they were certainly better than they were without him there Um, you know I I have that as as my top moment and then my honorary mention here uh, it's not actual play during the season but you know I have to and I already kind of mentioned him a little bit there Uh, Jalen Brunson jersey retirement night uh, just mm. to be able for for that legend to come back and, and be honored in the way that he deserves, you know, to have basically the entire Knicks team show up to, I think shows how beloved the guy is professionally, just like he is uh, for, for us here at Villanova. I love that he got the opportunity to do that. And uh, when I think back of some, some positives from this year, uh, that was probably my favorite night of the season. Yeah, no, it was fun. And then you saw that video afterwards of him reacting to the Josh Hart news. That was pretty yes. cool. Yeah, not, not bad. So game of the year, we'll move into that one then. So obviously the the win over Xavier is is very up there in this category, but I mm-hmm. gave it to to the following win, the seventy nine to sixty seven win over Creighton at the no Wells Fargo way Center. we both picked that one. Oh I my thought god, we were going to go out there for that. All right, no, I think it has to be the the thirty one points for Dixon is a pretty good argument. Six for eight from three in the way that Neptune out coached Greg McDermott, I thought was a really big deal. Yep. They kept a really good three point team to under twenty percent from beyond the three-point line, which was huge. Creighton, another team that's making a big run in this tournament. But I think that this was the most dominant win that Villanova had all season long. They didn't get those big wins, the dominant easy wins against the Delaware States or St. John's or Georgetown even. And it took all the way until, what, the third to last regular season game of the year against Creighton no less for that to happen. So that was definitely one of my favorite moments. If we had physical tickets still, and it wasn't all on your phone, I would burn my ticket to the Delaware state game. (laughs) Just, I want no recollection that that I was there. Uh, My game of the year, as I said, also Creighton at the Wells Fargo center, honorable mentions to X at Cintas as well as Oklahoma uh, in December. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. uh, Debut. It was a very uh, fun atmosphere and it was a big win for a team that desperately needed it at that point. But just to, piggyback on what you said for the Creighton game why I picked it it just felt like Villanova basketball Mm -hmm. and as I mentioned earlier in the show we didn't get a whole lot of moments that felt like that that game I think encapsulated it pretty well yeah and honorable mention to that three game stretch that you mentioned earlier in the show the at home versus DePaul and Seton Hall and then or all three DePaul Seton Mm -hmm. Hall Butler we talked all season long about how they needed to avoid losses to bad teams And it felt like if they lost or dropped any of those games, the sky really would have fallen. So the fact that they were able to to get the job done and then bring that momentum into the three-game winning streak against the really good teams, the Xavier, the Cravens, and the Seton Hall, I thought that was big for momentum. 
I know you already touched on who needs to step up for next year. You said Brendan Hawson. I'm going with Jordan Longino. Uh, I, I think it's time for Jordan. That shot needs to develop. He more than doubled his minutes per game, but played fewer games. We know he struggled with injury here. He has really struggled from beyond the arc. I need to see that come forward because I do feel he can be a fundamental piece for this team. And then leading into the question, what is your starting five for next mm. season? So... This is assuming Dixon stays. I have Armstrong yep. mm-hmm. as the point guard. I got a shooting guard with a little X here okay. because that will be the transfer. I have Longino in the three, Dixon in the four, and then five with another X. I think Dumont is an interesting piece. Uh, I can see him being the sixth man. I can see him starting depending on where Villanova does go in the portal. But I like that bench so far of Dumont and Hawson, and then Chris Arch, and, and hopefully a healthy Nana and Joku to round that out so far. Interesting on, on Dumont. You have you have higher expectations than I do there, right away, at least. I, I think he's going to be a nice fit. I just I don't mm-hmm. think he's going to be closer to the starting lineup at the start. We'll see if he can play his way into it, which would be really exciting. Um, I have the same as you, where it's Armstrong, Longino, and Dixon, and then I pencil in two transfers, whether it be a center, whether it be a wing and a guard. Uh, I think they're going to have to bring in two new faces uh, to be able to go into that starting lineup. Yeah. It's also interesting, we've talked about how Kyle Neptune, if at all, will change the game plan because it was very similar to Jay Wright's mm-hmm. style of play from last year. He did experiment with leashes off the bench. He exper- he uh, experimented with depth. He experimented with tempo a little bit. I wonder if he'll experiment without having to, which he did have to this year, play freshman. Sure. So, so that will be where Dumont stays. And then with the transfers, obviously not something that Jay had to deal with every single year. So just a, a lot of question marks that Kyle Neptune is going to have to address this off season and then start play next year. I'm excited to see how it all unfolds. Well, so I was going to ask you basically uh, to pick which, how we wanted to end with these final three questions, but now you mentioned Kyle Neptune. So I have to go into it. What are your impressions of Kyle Neptune after year one? I got to let you go first here. I'm, okay. I'm still fully forming ideas. That that's all right. Uh, how I would summarize is work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's impossible to not mention that he was dealt a very cruel hand here. Uh, first off, he is the guy following the guy, which we know is as difficult a position to be in when you come in behind a legend as Kyle is behind Jay. This team also, of course, just went to a Final Four uh, a year ago. What happens? You know, Jay Wright retires. They lose Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels. On top of that, Justin Moore, Cam Whitmore, and Jordan Longino all miss varying time uh, throughout the season. Three guys that you really wanted to rely on as we move through here. And and Angelo Brizzy transfers midseason, though Kyle most certainly had a hand um, in that happening. I, I look back at Neptune. There was lots of experimentation for him, which... I don't think is a bad thing. Um, you know, they, we saw some different lineups. We saw him go to zone on defense. Partially, it was because things weren't working, but I give him credit to then see what did work. And in many instances, they didn't, but uh, it's worth trying something new rather than doing the same thing over and over again. Now, that didn't happen in every facet of the game, a la the three-point shooting, which I already talked about, and I will try not to uh, have the steam start coming out of my ears again there. Um you know, uh, the growing pains with Cam, I think, were very interesting to watch where where Neptune would pull him over. He did pull him out of games from time to time. You know, I remember that New Year's Eve game where Whitmore sat for what, like the final seven minutes of oh, a yeah. close game because he just he wasn't trusted at, at that point. Uh, while I disagree 
with it from, from Kyle Neptune there. What it also does is it shows the coach has got a little bit of guts to be able to do mm-hmm. that to your five-star freshman that, that's going to the NBA. And I know we we talked about it a little bit uh, on the last show, but I want him to put more of Kyle Neptune's stamp on this program. This year felt like let's try and keep things as consistent as possible from Jay Wright uh, into our, our new era of basketball. And I get it. Of course, they, they just had, you know, Jay Wright just had this unbelievable run here at Villanova, but as we all know, he's not the coach anymore. I want Kyle to take over. I want Kyle to put in his philosophy. I want Kyle to to start to play to more of a way that he thinks will fit this thing better. And maybe we'll start to see things change a little bit and see Nova get back on track rather than trying to replicate what's worked before. Yeah, that's the replication part is exactly what I'll be looking for. And he's done it. We saw him take a bad Fordham team to yep. also 500 in his first year with that program. I think it's unrealistic to think that this team had the same ceiling as it did last year, obviously because of the loss of Jay Wright and two key players, one of them being one of the best players in the country. I think for Kyle Neptune, there are some things that immediately stick out as as things that he has to get better at as a coach, Mm -hmm. late game execution, calling timeouts when it's necessary, changing up defenses when it's necessary, substitution. So all of those things, there's a list of things that he absolutely has to get better at. And that the team last year was better at. But that being said, I think it's fair to give him that year of a grace period. I think he's shown flashes. Again, I keep coming back to that Creighton win where he showed that he can be a damn good coach. Mm-hmm. And and taking into account the potential fluctuation of his coaching staff, there's going to be a lot of moving parts. This is the most movement that we've seen at Villanova over the last two years than what? The last... 20 years <laughs> since Jay Wright came in on his own. So I think it's fair to think that this is a, 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 a stepping block year. Like momentum is building and next year is when we can really take that criticism and use it against him. If it's not taking steps in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking at the roster as a whole too, I'm excited to try and see Kyle Neptune be an architect and mm. what, he the the final creation ends up being because we think about this year this was jay wright's roster and jay deserves some blame because it was a certainly a imperfect roster and how the pieces fit together there is going to be so much turnover um on, on this team with, with guys that are either graduating going to the draft potentially transferring that many slots are opening up and now it is kyle's job to bring in guys that he thinks will be a fit and we'll work in this team. So it's it's time for a remodeling job, and he's your head guy. Let's see how he does here. He's able to build a team more in his image, and we'll go from there. Yeah, it's int- I wish I knew more about the Fordham team that he did lead. I know that they were very three-point happy, but I wonder if we are going to see what Kyle Neptune's really like. Like, there's a chance that next year's Villanova looks radically different. I think Not just because they're losing a lot of faces, but stylistically, they could be very different from teams of the past i still think they're going to shoot a lot of threes i still think it'll be guard you but they need size they need to get better rebounding tempo all the things that we've listed all throughout this episode i'm excited for the fact that kyle like this could be the start you throw last year out you have a lot to learn from obviously but the 2023 2024 season is when we could actually see the type of coach that kyle neptune is and i think it's fair to start really thinking about his legacy at Villanova from there, because that is finally his roster. I think we've hit most on the what went wrong 
portion mm-hmm. throughout here without exactly uh going to this question you know lack of a point guard through injuries uh perimeter defense three-point shooting so you want to go to one final question on how will you remember this season yeah i do just want to mention one more thing about what went wrong i think they lacked a true score all season i was thinking about old villanova teams and watching so much basketball over the last few days what makes the great teams this year great they all have a guy and even when you look at on ESPN, if you look at the schedule page for for each team, it shows the scores and then it also shows the team leading score, rebounder, and assist guy. For Villanova, you will see a plethora of names this season. If you look upwards to five years ago, you're really only seeing two guys. It was Pascal and Booth, Gillespie. And Robinson Earl, Sadiq Bey, Josh Hart. Like, there was always a guy. And then in 2018, you almost don't even count that because that was one of the best offensive teams ever in college basketball. But this year, Moore was never fully healthy. Daniels had his ups and downs. Whitmore wasn't put in a position to score on every possession. So every game really featured a different leading score. And I don't think that happens to a lot of the best teams in the country. So mm. you mentioned needing more shooting. I absolutely think that is a priority because they just need more options. When defenses harp on specific players, they need more options of, of guys that can score. Hello, Khalif Battle and Jameer Nelson Jr. Come on yes. down. <laughs> Come on down. But how I remember this season, I, the two things, I mentioned one of them, what could have been. I think if this team was healthy early, you wonder what could have been. If this team had the whole season to work out the kinks so that they could be playing their best basketball at the right time. You wonder what could have been. I think overall it was a disappointing season because it didn't live up to the expectations that we always have of Villanova basketball, but it was unrealistic for any of us to think that a team without Jay Wright, Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels, and Whitmore Moore and Longino for big chunks of the season would be able to compete as usual. So I put part of that blame on myself but I think I can also in the same vein be disappointed at how the season turned out. Absolutely. No, it is disappointing because there there was and is talent here. Uh, the issue and how I will remember it is square peg and round hole. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what I've been getting at the the whole time here is that the pieces just did not fit together this year. And it, it led to a, a team that did not flow cohesively, that struggled uh, to be able to find rhythm on offense, that did not work together on defense the way that we've seen it. And it is now Villanova's job to find guys that will flow the way we've seen and, and, and will click together on the floor in a way that creates a team that just we, we don't see as many lapses on both side of the, sides of the ball that we saw this yeah. year. Uh, and then for also looking back at it, the hope is that this is just remembered as a bump in the road, you know, mm-hmm. b- before the program gets back on track. There is a lot of heavy lifting in front of Nova. There is no way to sugarcoat it here. Um, they, they've got a, a lot to do to be able to remodel everything that is changing. But, you know, I, I think you keep faith in understanding where Villanova's been, uh, some of the guys that have been around and, and the guys that can be attracted to really propel themselves here i mean we're, we're talking about this disastrous season i, I say in quotes and they went 17 and 17 10 yeah. and 10 perspective <laughs> and yeah exactly and they came in while overranked they still came in ranked in, in the ap poll that this is not a georgetown situation um by by any means though you wouldn't know that if you've read uh some of the tweets that we get yeah. sent uh over it so 
that's where I would try and level set it. There's a lot of work to be done. There are some pieces in place here. Uh, it's very important that those pieces remain in place. And let's pick back up and, and see how they're able to to really change this team through the offseason. It's not a Louisville either. It's always. Oh, don't say that. I don't that. even want. I, I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> uh, I, I debated. I don't think it's fair to compare Jay Wright to Kyle Neptune, obviously, or vice versa, because they are in completely different spheres. But I do wonder what Jay Wright would have done with this year's team That's as a fair currently question. constituted, mm-hmm. because maybe some decisions you give Jay the check, and maybe they win that game by two points as opposed to losing by two points, but. The roster is the roster. And that is why, like you said, it is Villanova's job. The onus is on Kyle Neptune now to construct this team to be set up for better success next season. And we will get a decent idea of it probably over the next month or so um, as a transfer portal really heats up and uh, excited to dive on into it. So excited for that. Yeah. And that is why you probably have not heard from us for the last time this season, Pat. Most likely, most likely. I think there's going to be some some action uh, coming in there. So anything else you want to hit or uh, ready to throw it to the uh, women's reaction? I think I'm good. Yeah. I mean, we obviously threw over an hour's worth of content at everybody, but I do feel like we did a good job of, of summing everything up as much as we could with all the moving parts, looking towards the future and how different this team could look, but also trying to give the respect that this team deserved and that Caleb Daniels and Brandon Slater put five years into this program. Kyle Neptune had the no easy task of taking over for Jay Wright, one of the best college basketball coaches in collegiate history, taking into account that there were injuries, that there were question marks, that there were freshmen being put into big time scenarios. And unfortunately it just didn't translate into the success that Villanova basketball is used to. Yeah. A lot of change coming. Um, but we we saw some building blocks. Yep. I think it, it's interesting. We definitely have tempered expert expectations for next year because of what happened this year. But I think there's a lot of reason to be excited, and that's only going to grow as we finally start putting faces to names, names to faces, and the X's in our projected starting five to actual people who are coming into this program. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, we'll be able to dig a little bit further into next year when we actually know who's going to be here. That's a great exactly. point. Exactly. So. <laughs> but all right, we'll throw it to the, the women's reaction and we'll talk to you here to close this thing out in a second. All right, I am coming to you directly after Villanova's game with Florida Gulf Coast has just ended and the Villanova Wildcats were victorious 76-257 at the Finneran Pavilion to punch their ticket to the Sweet 16 this upcoming weekend in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, Pure joy and and pure proudness are, are the two emotions that really are shining through the most right now after watching Nova do that and return to the Sweet 16 for only the second time in school history and the first in 20 years since 2003. We discussed it towards the top of the show, so just to give it one more mention, the incredibly quick transformation that Denise Dillon has been able to enact uh, on this program in just three short years is remarkable to watch uh, and the impact that she's been able to make, you know, picked up win number 400 as well uh, in her coaching career here tonight and no bigger impact than sending her team, her school, her alma mater through 
to the Sweet 16 here for the first time. The first of many, we hope, uh, in Denise Dillon's tenure here at Villanova. Uh, that game against Cleveland State, we gave a ton of props to the role players here for the Lady Cats, and they deservedly so. Uh, this game on Monday night was all about your two stars. Uh, Lucy Olsen, uh, the one... The guard that can do no wrong. She is so fundamentally sound, so incredibly intelligent, played a phenomenal game, finished with 23 points, 10 boards, and 7 assists, just 3 assists shy of a triple-double. She came out and hit her first four field goals. Uh, Her range of passing is what really helps keep this offense in motion. Uh, A couple step-back threes from her as well to really keep the defense honest was fun to watch and uh, rebounding. I believe they said she only had 11 rebounds in her last four games. So what does she do? She comes out there and puts up 10 uh, here in a round of 32 game. And then of course there's Maddie Seacrest. uh, One of, if not the greatest player to ever come through Villanova uh, finishes with 31 points uh, on the night back to back 30 point games here in the tournament for Maddie. Um, she was on all night. She got going early. Uh, we know that just her off ball movement puts her in so many great spots to be able to score the basketball around the hoop. We know that uh, she's able to create a lot of damage uh, in both the high and mid post w- with that jumper. And we saw it many, many times how she's able to really set up her shots with, with jab steps uh, and, and be able to catch her opponents off guard, go up with that jumper and drill it more often than not. It is unbelievably impressive. And she's just a walking bucket. It's that simple. 31 points yet again from her. Uh, you know, Villanova did deal with some foul trouble. Uh, Christina Dalse picking up four fouls and picked up two fouls in the first two minutes of the game. You know, that that could have been a big blow to this Villanova team uh, to lose that size, that interior presence. I believe it was Florida Gulf Coast first possession down. She came down and swatted, uh, you know, a a shot immediately there uh, as their rim protector, but it really didn't falter them uh, all that much. And they ended up still crushing Florida Gulf Coast on the rebounding margin, 42 to 30 as a team, which again, just goes into the really impressive team effort that I think this iteration of the Cats seem to put out there every single night. Uh, You know, important to note as well, we we talked about it at the beginning of the show, this Florida Gulf Coast team shoots and makes a ton of threes. Now, they they shot a ton of threes in in 21, but they only made seven of them. Villanova was very disciplined around the three-point line, did not give them many open shots, and closed out very well on defense as well defensively. You know, other than that first quarter where they were a menace and were so intense and came out and forced so many turnovers and ended up with Florida Gulf Coast having 14 in total. So what does that mean? That means that the Villanova Wildcats, as I said, will be playing next weekend in a Sweet 16 game. As I record this short little interlude, uh, the Miami-Indiana game is at halftime, and Miami is currently leading there trying to pull an upset. Uh, It's a difficult matchup either way for the Cats. Talked about some of the pedigree that goes in with Indiana, but Miami Miami had a very strong first round showing and currently has Indiana in a tough position at halftime. So whatever it is, it's going to be a really good game, but we know that the Villanova Wildcats are rolling right now and they most definitely have a chance, even in a stacked region, to get out of it and get to Texas in a Final Four. And I think that's what's super, super exciting. So 
Just wanted to hit, make sure we had a quick note here with this episode dropping on Tuesday. I will send it back to the rest of the episode that was recorded on Sunday. We are jumping all around for you, and uh, we'll talk to you in a sec. All right, so there there was the women's reaction. Uh, it's back now to uh, Sunday afternoon, though you'll be hearing... What you just heard came from Monday night, so we're going from the future to the past to will still be the past by the time you listen to it because it happened Monday and you're listening on Tuesday. We are inceptioning all of you out there right oh, yeah. now. Um, but Try and I mean, keep up. Try and keep up, please. I'm trying to keep up, honestly. <laughs> um, but ho- hopefully the women were able to pull it out uh, on Monday night. Um, you know, as we kind of refer to a little bit here, uh, this will probably not be the final show of the season, but it is our full last full length show. Uh, we're not going to have a set cadence, but one or both of us will pop in with some quick hit episodes when news comes out, uh, such as a hopeful continued run in the NCAA tournament for the women's team, uh, as well as our transfer news. So just keep an eye out for that. Yeah, definitely. It won't be. Yeah, it won't be super scheduled, as Pat mentioned, yeah. but we want to be able to deliver as much news as we can and what we hope and mostly expect to be a pretty busy Villanova off season. Uh, I, I think so. And then since this is our last full length episode, I uh, want to be able to do this now, you know, a special thank you to all of you listeners out there um, that have been a part of the show throughout the season, whether you listen to one episode, all the episodes, anything in between. Uh, we just appreciate you taking the time to listen to what two Villanova class of 2020 grads uh, have to say about the team and the school we love so much. Uh, you know, specific thank yous to guys like John Palme, Big Tasty, Jack McCall, Matt Berger, Tom Zhang, and our man Jerry Quinn uh, as guys that asked questions week after week and, and were a part of a show. Uh, we, we really appreciate anyone who asked questions throughout the season. You know, thank you to our guests, Chris Nataro, Tommy Godin, Alan Rain, Matt St. Jean, uh, with shout outs to the team at the Full 40 as well uh, for always being so great to interact with throughout the season. Uh, we have to mention the behind the scenes crew of uh, Mike J and Eugene that continue to push this show forward, uh, you know, with, with VU Hoops and, and all that they do uh, for, for us there. So thank you so much to those guys. Uh, our little Villanova Hoops community here is what makes doing this so much fun. So thank you all for being a part of it and uh, and just listening to the nonsense that uh, I especially uh, put up on a weekly basis. No way. No, it's it's so much easier to listen to a team to us talk about a team that went to the final four, like what happened last year. It is not as easy to talk about a team that went on its fair share of losing streaks and ended up finishing right at 500. So we cannot tell you enough how much we appreciate you sticking along with us for the ride. And we are so excited for next season and all that's left to come for us here. Absolutely. You will probably hear a little bit more of us um, as we go through this. But all right, that'll do it for us here on the State of the Nova Nation presented by VU Hoops. Be sure to check out VUHoops.com for all your Villanova content all season long and off season long. Uh, Follow the show on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at S-O-N-N-Pod. We are so close to a thousand followers. Come on, year's almost over. I know you guys want to do it. Uh, We will be back at it at some point uh, here with, with some news. But as I said, thank you so much for everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Nova Nation, that's a wrap. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. 
With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical.